ask people who they say Christ is. But I guarantee you that you get angel, uh, answers that are, that are far more strange than the answers that uh, these people have given here. I watched a video of, I think this may have been West Coast, I don't know, but you can kind of tell where people come from. Dennis, you can bring my volume just a little bit lower. People are giving answers from the West Coast. It sounds kind of new agey, very strange. New York, uh, just a different, a different group of answers, I guess. Uh, but, but I watch a lot of these videos, and I've done this often. And it's always interesting to me the answer that people give as to who Christ is. And what gets me, of all the answers, of all the things that you should know or could know, there's really nothing that you need to know more accurately than who Christ is. I mean, it is the basis of Christianity, right? I mean, Christianity, Christianity hinges on the reality of who Christ is. So it's, it's, it's an answer we need to know. It's an answer that as Christians especially, we need to be ready to give an account and say, this is who Christ is. Even the last lady who seems to be giving the correct answer at first, and then she says, Jesus is who you know, comes through my poetry, who I speak to my poetry, the answers start to just kind of go over the edge a little bit and get just a, a little bit strange. So this question matters. It matters so much that at the beginning of John's gospel, he, he lays down this foundation. He says, I want to be very clear. Before you get into the narrative of the gospel, he says, you need to know who Jesus is. And he gives this very doctrinally rich introduction to who Christ is because this introduction matters. Now, today is the introduction to the book of John. It's not going to be super technical. I agree with what Arthur Pink, the commentary who died many, many years ago, I agree with his sentiment when he says, you know what, we need to really get to the heart of the matter. We can talk about the potential date. We can talk about the arguments for authorship, but that's not what feeds the soul. So we're not going to take a lot of time being super technical about where and when this was written, although it was probably around 70, you know, 70 AD. Thank you, Evan. Around that time, written by John. But here's, here's a question you need to understand or, or a fact that you need to understand. And I'm going to do this very briefly so that we can get into the text as soon as possible. What is a gospel? Not as what is the gospel. What is a gospel? Well, you've got four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've got three of which, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic gospels. Those are synonymous. The storyline is very, very similar. You'll notice that Mark is a shorter gospel, but what you'll also find in the book of Mark is it's not as, uh, it's not as thorough as, say, Matthew's eyewitness account of things. So Mark's account is going to be a little bit different. Just like if you witness something, if you spend a week at the beach on vacation with another family and you're telling someone else who's a third party, hey, this is what we did, your account is going to be mostly the same. But if I come and tell this person, this is what we did for the week, I might add some things to the story or omit some things from the story. And this is what happens in the Gospels. But they're called, the first three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, because they're very close very closely related in the story that they tell. But John stands out against the rest of the Gospels. John's account stands out as being more focused on the divinity of Christ. John's intention, you can say the primary theme, the lenses that you need to have on your face when you're reading through John's Gospel is reading it through the deity of Christ because that is the point that keeps coming up over and over and over and over Again, so here's kind of the breakdown for the, for the four Gospels. 
In Matthew, Jesus is portrayed as the son of David, the heir of Israel's throne. In Mark, Christ is seen as the servant of Jehovah, the perfect workman of God. And everyone in the second gospel brings out the characteristics, I'm sorry, and everything in the second gospel brings out the characteristics of his service and the manner in which he served. The gospel of Luke highlights the humanity of Jesus. It has the other things, Jesus being a servant. It has Jesus maybe being portrayed as the son of David or the son of man. But Luke's gospel highlights the humanity of Jesus a little bit more so than the others. His humanity as a savior and presents him as the perfect man, contrasting him from the sinful sons of men. And then finally, John's gospel. It views Christ as the heavenly one who's come down from heaven, who came to earth, who came down from being unified in person, in presence with the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He leaves them, John 1.14, which we'll get to in a while, not today. And then he comes down as the eternal Son, made flesh, and he tabernacled with us. God in flesh is tabernacling with us or tabernacled with them in that day. And from start to finish, this is the one dominating theme or dominant truth which is steadily held in view when we look at the book of John. So there's a, a brief overview of, of what the differences are in these Gospels and why the first three are considered the synoptic Gospels as opposed to John. Who was John? John was one of the apostles. And it's important to know that because what he writes are eyewitness accounts. It's, it's one thing to hear a story from someone who's heard something secondhand, thirdhand, so on and so forth. But it's another thing to see it for yourself. If I go somewhere and someone's telling me of, you know, the 10-point, the, 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 the 12-point buck that they killed, you know, or they tell me what they saw, you know, it's, it's, I, I hear that, but it's different than me seeing it for myself. If I'm giving the account as an eyewitness, there's something to my credibility, you know. Well, if someone else saw it and they told me they said they saw it, there's something to their credibility. But if it becomes secondhand, thirdhand, it's like, okay, let's go to the source and find out if this is really credible or not. But John is a credible witness who's writing about this. He was one of the sons of thunder. James and John were brothers. And Jesus, for some reason that he did not explain in the Bible, called he and his brother James the sons of, of thunder. I don't know why. I don't know. It wasn't arbitrary. Jesus doesn't do things in an arbitrary fashion. There was some reason. I guess we may never know. So what's the main theme of the Gospel of John? Well, we think that there are three primary themes. One overarching theme being the, the deity of Christ because that in and of itself is what Christianity hinges on. You know, because you can have a crucifixion but if you don't have a perfect sacrifice, you can't have a successful atoning crucifixion. Okay? You can't have that. And so they're all linked to the deity of Jesus. So we Austin and I were talking about this, and we're basically going to highlight three key themes. Divinity of Jesus, and that he is the divine son of God, but also God in flesh. The lordship of Jesus, and that Jesus rules all things. And then the redemption of Christ, which is through Jesus, redemption comes to all who will believe. So those are the three themes that you should see as we go through this. So this is an introduction into the book of John. Introductions do matter. Let me give you an example. I've created this hypothetical situation. I want to introduce to you somebody named Clark. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about Clark. He's an extreme, he has an extreme bent towards narcissism. This is Clark. Okay, I want you to meet Clark. He has an extreme bent towards narcissism. His life has been one giant failure after the next. 
He's lactose intolerant and pretty much intolerant of every single person that he's ever run into. He has a huge chip on his shoulder, and he has an exhausting sense of entitlement. Isn't, isn't this someone that you'd just like to be around? And did I mention he's a vegetarian? Of all offenses, he's a vegetarian. Now, you two kids go and have fun together, hang out. What if, what if there was a young lady, you know, that, that was of the age that she's looking for someone to be uh, in, in, a, in a marriage with and spend her life with, and I said, hey, I want to, I'm not a matchmaker. I leave that to my wife, even though I say don't do that, but she likes to do that. So let's say that I'm going to play matchmaker. I'm going to introduce one of the young ladies at Haven Ridge and say, hey, why don't you meet Clark? And I've given her this description. I've introduced Clark in this way. Hey, he's a vegetarian. He's a narcissist. He's got a chip on his shoulder. He has a exhaustive, exhausting sense of entitlement. He's pretty much a jerk, you know, and that's all I've given them. Do they really have to imagine what things are going to be like, or is it pretty much spelled out? Do they have to say, well, let me just dip my toes in the water and see what happens? You know what's going to transpire because of the introductions that I've given you, because I've given them a lens so that they can see what things are probably going to look like. And let me be very clear about this. So what have we learned through the introduction to Clark? If this is a young lady, or if this is just anybody wanting to go hang out with him, when things start to transpire in that relationship, you can say, oh, this makes sense. It makes sense because he's all these things. You've learned that because he's a narcissist, he will be talking about himself a good bit of the time. You've learned that because his life is one giant failure after another, he will most likely be bitter towards others and towards their success and prone to negativity. You can surmise that. You can count on that. Why? Because you know that he has had a lot of failures in his life. So there's a strong likelihood that he might be pessimistic. There's a strong likelihood that he might be bitter towards other success. You'll also learn that his lactose intolerance combined with his refusal to deny himself any kind of dairy products will prove to be a bad combination most likely in the future. You've also learned that his intolerance for people will lead to unpleasantness, unpleasantness such as him being impatient, short, and snappy with other people. This is just what the introduction tells you about this person. His huge chip on his shoulder will mean that you have to put up with his arrogance. And his sense of entitlement means that you will spend probably most of your time feeling like you owe him something or him making you feel like you owe him something. And his vegetarian ways will mean that you have to tolerate the nonsense that is meat substitutes, okay? You can get all this, and I'm not offended by vegetarians. It's just it's funny because um, I'm a meat lover. So, and his... So this is, this is the introduction. This is what you get. The introduction to Clark gave you the information that you need to determine whether or not you want to invest in that kind of relationship. Now, if I was actually introducing you to someone like that, you would want me to fill you in. You would want me to say, let me just give you fair warning. This is what you can anticipate. This is what you can expect. I don't know if you've ever had a friend that had a friend that they didn't want to be their friend, so they were trying to pawn them off on you as a friend, so they omit certain information. Maybe the person is a bit clingy or leech-like. And so they say, hey, I've got a friend that you need to hook up with. Y'all got so much in common. And really what they want to do is get rid of the burden that is on their back, and it become your burden. You want a proper introduction so that you can see things properly and so that you can make sense of things as they start to unfold and this is exactly what the apostle john has done for you and he's done for me he has said look i'm going to give you this introduction i want to give you this doctrinally rich statement about christ and those are going to provide you with the lenses that you need so that when you go through every book of john and you see jesus 
acting in this way and speaking in this way, you see it through the lenses of his deity. You see it through the lenses of his relationship to time, his relationship to creation, his relationship to the triune Godhead, his relationship to all these things as the word of God. John has done us a tremendous favor. Why? Because it's not something that we can miss. It's not something that we can afford to get wrong. So he says, here's the key. And I may say this later because it's in my notes later, but Arthur Pink said a great thing. He said, it's like the Holy Spirit has, has placed the key to the door right on, top of, right on top of the trim, right on top of the door to the gospel of John. He says, before you enter, let me share with you what you need to expect. What would it be like to be introduced to Jesus? I and mean, you've all introduced people to other people. And maybe when you have an experience where you're sharing Christ with someone, the idea is that maybe you're introducing them to Jesus. In a sense, you are. Maybe they've never heard of Christ. Maybe you've been overseas, and this person has never heard the gospel. They've never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And statistics say that more people have heard of Coca-Cola than they've heard of Jesus Christ. So let's say you go to someone who's heard, who has not heard of Jesus, and you have the privilege of introducing them to Christ. Maybe they won't become a Christian right then or ever. Maybe they will. But the fact is you get to say, let me tell you who Jesus is. How would you do it? How would you start? If you're like me, you'd need time. I want to explain things. I want to show things. But John, so succinctly, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, there's more to the prologue, but that's as far as we're going to go today. And that's how John begins this. Very, very doctrinal. The purpose of John's introduction was that we might be able to discover Christ throughout the pages of that gospel. This is the favor of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John, as the writer has done for us. So there's a few things I want you to see. Okay, so if you're taking notes or whatever, here's where your outline begins. We're going to see the relationship dynamic that Jesus has to all these things that are mentioned in these first three verses. The first being his relationship to time. Now, this morning's message is very doctrinal. That's what you get into when you get into the book of John, when you get into, you know, the Gospels. You get into a lot of doctrinal content. We just finished Ruth, so we go through narrative, which has doctrinal content, you know, but, but you find it more easily when the canvas is fully painted. You find it when the picture starts to come into view or into frame, you start to understand the character and the nature of God as God is revealing himself. But right here, out of the gate, John says, we waste no time. I want you to understand something about Christ's relationship to time as he is the eternal son. It says, in the beginning. Now, I want you to understand, this is not the beginning of a sequence of events. That's how we think of beginnings. Beginnings mark the start of something. I had a beginning. I had a beginning 39 years ago today. All right, don't know what time, but 39 years ago today, I had a beginning, at least into the world. I was conceived even before that. So I guess my actual beginning was nine months prior to my actual birth, or a few, give or take a few days. But I had a beginning because I started. And I am bound by time, by the way, which God is not. So this was the point before time began, not a particular point in time. God, the Trinity, he transcends time. Okay, hang on. It's very, very theological, very doctrinal. Time only exists because God created and gave time its existence. If God existed from eternity past, if he is infinite, if he is eternal, 
He had no beginning. There was no start to that. So time had not yet been created. I'm, as far as I understand things, in order for there to be time, there has to be matter. There has to be these other things. But here's what we know of the scriptures. When God started making things, they had a beginning, but he did not. He created ex nihilo. He created out of nothing. God spoke, and these things came to being, and time began. But God preexisted that, and God exists outside of that. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. When you and I focus on events, we can look, um, when we focus on time in, a, in the moment, it seems to move by very slowly, okay? Maybe you're sitting there now and you're saying, you know what, this sermon's moving by very slowly, right? Because you're in this moment, you're watching it. If you're watching your watch, it's going by even, even slower. So when we're watching time, when we're in the middle of time right there, watching the moment pass us by, when we're paying attention to that, it goes by so slowly. But if you and I back up, like I back up and look at 39 years, I'm like, man, that was a blink. That happened so fast. We watch our kids grow up. We say, these things happen so fast. Where did the time go? My son, you know, is, is, is basically, you know, about to get a job in, in my eyes. I mean, he's that, he feels like he's that old. And I'm like, but he was just a, a little bitty, crazy, squirrely-haired kid that was a bit too heavy for a kid that age not so many years ago. Where does time go? When you back up, time just moves because we're bound by time, because we're not, we're not eternal in that sense. We had a beginning. We will live eternally, but we have a beginning. God is outside of time. You and I will always exist in time because we had a beginning. Time only exists because beginnings exist, and God has no beginning. Therefore, he's outside of time. God sees time equally vividly. To borrow a term from a theologian Wayne Grudem, he sees time equally vividly. And what I, the point I just made will help in the sense that we look at yesterday or we look at this morning, and it's vivid in our imagination. It's fond. It's, well, maybe not fond for some people, but it's, it's close. We can remember details. What about yesterday morning? Can you recall immediately what you had for breakfast? What about two days ago? What about a month ago? Do you remember what you wore on February the 2nd? No, you probably don't. If you do, let's talk. There's some issues, right? So you, you, you don't know because time has continued to progress for you. You are living in time in a sequence of events. God lives outside of that. Every moment in the past, present, and the future, God sees equally vividly, which is really remarkable when you think about it. Everything from your past, God sees it vividly like he's in that moment now because he has to be all the events of your future God sees it because he's there because he's outside of time Psalm 90 verse 4 says for a thousand years in your sight are but a yesterday when it's past or as a watch in the night we see recent events more vividly but we view past events as though they're a blur or sometimes they're forgotten altogether so being outside of time allows God to see all the events in history and the future equally. And what is John doing by giving us this little doctrinal nugget? He's saying Jesus is eternal. He's eternal. He's eternally sovereign. He sees all things. He knows all things. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing, nothing catches him by surprise. And he was there fully God. John 7, 17, 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
just an argument for the deity of Christ, but also an argument for the eternality of Christ, in that Jesus is saying, before I became flesh, I was with you. And so glorify me with the glory that I had then from eternity past. So for all of time, for all eternity, Jesus has been glorious and he has been present with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. But most cults and world religions outside of Christianity reject the deity and eternality of Christ. But the evidence of this truth are overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. So it's clear that Jesus existed from eternity past. But here's the question. He existed. We know that. That's very doctrinal. He existed. We got that from the beginning. Not his beginning, but the concept of eternity. But in what capacity did he live? In what capacity? In what, in what form? In what way? What says this? From eternity past that Jesus in the beginning was the what? Was the word. Now this is weird. It's weird to refer to Jesus as the word. You know, I mean, we've said it all our life he's the he's the word of god and we have the word of god but we have jesus who is the word who is the word of god and it's strange language it's strange language but i want to submit to you some thoughts as to how to understand what this means and i think a scholar that i enjoy reading he really helped to pack this so that we can understand what it means for him to be the word as it relates to jesus introducing us to god the father so a word brings understanding to a concept or to an image. So here, here's, your, here's your three points regarding Jesus being the word. A word is a medium of manifestation. And I've talked about this before. I think it was probably two years ago. A word is a medium of manifestation. Here's what I mean. I have a thought in my mind. I'm thinking of something. You have no clue what I'm thinking. But the moment that I put clothing on my thought, I bring what's incomprehensible because it's in my mind to being that which is intelligible you follow me so I'm thinking something I'm I have this vision okay I want to articulate it when I start to articulate it when I start to put clothes to my vision then you start to see it you see it why because you hear it you're hearing it because I'm speaking it with my words I'm bringing clarity to a concept I'm bringing clarity or I'm bringing not a physicality, but I'm bringing a, a, a coherency uh, to my, my thought processes. So Jesus, as the Word, comes so that we might be able to understand God, that we might take God who is incomprehensible, and then God becomes intelligible. He becomes comprehensible because of the Word. And what are one of the reasons that Jesus was sent here? He was sent here that we might know God. You see, nature, nature teaches us about God. It teaches us about his existence, and it teaches us about his being. But nature does not help us to understand the moral attributes of God. The justice of God, the wrath of God, and all these things are not what's necessarily revealed in nature. It's revealed in Jesus. So Jesus, as the great revelator, the final revelator, Jesus is sent as the word so that he can clothe a concept to us that is God. I told you it gets very theological. A word is a medium of manifestation, but a word is a means of communication. Words are used to transfer information to others. Jesus communicated for us the love of God. Jesus communicates to us, as the word of God, the grace of God. What we see in Jesus, I mean, Jesus said it himself. He said, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Or if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What does he mean by that? He means that he is the exact representation 
of God. He is the image of God. He is the radiance of His glory, Hebrews 1. And He comes so that when we see Him, we can see God. Because otherwise, nobody sees God. So Jesus is, as the Word, a means of communication. And then as the Word, Jesus is a method of revelation. Or a Word is a method of revelation. I don't normally alliterate. So you know that I've borrowed this from a scholar. Christ reveals the attributes and perfections of God. God is revealed to a degree in humanity and the rest of creation, but he's revealed most clearly through the person Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't want to confuse the issue. Romans 1 makes it very clear that no one is without excuse because God has made himself known in creation. So yes, we look out and we see there is a God because this doesn't just happen. Everything doesn't just happen. Watch, watch Nat Geo for just a little while. Watch Discovery or the Animal Planet for just five minutes and try to convince yourself that an intelligent designer didn't design these things. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so God has made these things and Christ was sent to reveal the attributes of God, reveal the goodness of God, reveal the grace of God and all of these things. So Jesus is the Word Jesus is the Word of God. He has a relationship to time as the Word of God. He also has a relationship to the Trinity. So if we're looking past, if we're looking on through the verse, we come to, in the beginning was the Word of God, or in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. The Word was with God. And if any of you are like me who sat with a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses for about an hour yesterday when I have five kids in my house. You know, I just can't help myself sometimes. I love talking to those guys. Uh, I learn a lot. I'm challenged a lot. Sometimes they ask questions, and I'm like, I'll have to get back to you. So if that's you, which it most likely is, don't feel bad about yourself. You know, they're always changing and manipulating Scripture, so you're always going to have to say, that's either really wild and just, quite frankly, bananas, you know, or, or I'm just not understanding. You know, and so these conversations are, are great to have. And it all hinges on the deity of Christ. I mean, that's where, you, that's where you need to go with these Jehovah's Witnesses. And that's what John is saying. So if you're wanting some fuel or if you're wanting some ammunition for when you're having these conversations, you need to be very well acquainted with the prologue of John's gospel. Because when he says the word was with God, and of course he says the word was God, but he begins with the word was with God, that statement itself has been argued that the word was with God is an ideal or a concept in the mind of God. That's what some would argue. That's an old Gnostic heresy from years and years and years ago that is still perpetuated today. Oh, that, that just means that he was a, it was an ideal. There was just some idea. But that's absolutely not, absolutely not what that means. With God, the with there is a particular language connoting just the opposite of Christ being an ideal or an idea, but it literally means he was in the presence of. I mean, in English, we look at that, and that's what we would think, or you should. He was with God. If I say Aaron was with me at the donut shop, you know, we probably shouldn't be there, but we are. So we're with each other. We think we're in the presence of one another. Now, sometimes in our vernacular, somebody's explaining something, and they may say, hey, Avery, are you with me? You with me? And you say, yeah, bro, I'm with you, right? So, so there's, we use that language too, but that's not what's going on at all. This is a physicality. There is a presence of Jesus, the Son, being with God the Father. This is Trinitari Trinitarian language. This is Trinitarian language. And there's other Trinitarian language, but, but here it is right in front of your face. And I need to issue you some caution 
Because as Christians, a mistake that Christians make is falling into a doctrine called modalism. I know I'm dropping a lot of crazy, fun, seminary-type words to you today, uh, but this is, this is the prologue. This is, this is intense stuff. But you need to understand, there are those, and this is Jehovah's Witness. A lot of them believe that this is the Christian view, the Orthodox Christian view of the Trinity. And they feel that it is, or some Christians believe that it is Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father are not one being three persons, but only one manifested at a time. They would say that God exists in different modes, one at a time. So God is God the Father when he needs to be God the Father. God is God the Son when he needs to be God the Son. And God is God the Holy Spirit when he needs to be God the Holy Spirit. And that's not biblical Trinitarianism. It's not. That's modalism. And I know if you're not careful, they can sound very, very similar. And a lot of Christians fall into that trap. And if you're changing the Trinity, then you've changed the nature and the being that is God. So then it begs the question, are you actually Christian? Because this is one of the things that Christianity hinges on. A true historical Jesus who is fully God, fully man. Equal. Equal. So that's modalism. A lot of professing Christians are modalists. Again, the belief that God is God the Father when it makes sense, God the Son when it makes sense, and God the Holy Spirit when it makes sense. Here's your problem. When you go into the Scriptures and you see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and then you have Jesus here, and then you have God here. Well, how, 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 how does that work? How are you having the two being represented when God only exists as one at one time, according to a modalist. What do you do with Jesus' baptism when Jesus is baptized? And the Father speaks, this is my Son, again, like the transfiguration, in whom I am well pleased, and you've got the Holy Spirit who descends like a dove. You have all three being represented. So the Trinity is God is one being. When you think God, you think all three. Trinity is God, one being, three persons. Absolutely, Jesus is God, but he's God the Son. God is God. He's God the Father. The Holy Spirit is God. He's God the Holy Spirit. And there are three separate beings always working, living, moving, acting for their glory, for the glory of God at all times. This is, this is true Trinitarianism. And when, when, when John says he was with God, he means that he was there present. It wasn't an ideal, it wasn't a concept, it wasn't just cognitive. He was actually physically present. So Jesus is not only the second person in the triune Godhead, and he has a relationship with the Trinity, but Jesus is the divine son. So there's a relationship that he has to deity. He's the divine son. Again, this is, there is no, I say there's no doctrine more vital or more important to Christianity than the doctrine of divine sonship of Christ. There is no doctrine more important to Christianity than the doctrine of the deity of Jesus or the divine sonship of Jesus. You saw a video, and in that video you saw people that were probably from the West Coast. The videos that I watched were people from North and Northeast. You got people all over the place. But I promise you, in the Bible Belt South, good old Bible Belt USA, I've been to so many homes and had so many conversations where I've heard people who say, I'm a Baptist or I'm a Presbyterian or I'm a Methodist who have the right Jesus doctrinally, 
But what they're saying is a false Christ. What they're presenting, what they're believing on is a false Christ. And I'm not saying that's a Methodist thing or a Baptist thing or a Presbyterian thing. I'm saying that's an individual thing. Somewhere along the way, they've missed it. They misunderstood. And there's too much at stake to not understand the doctrine of the divine sonship of Christ because Christianity hinges on Jesus' deity. Christianity hinges on that. Deity demands perfection. Follow me in this training of thought. I know that's difficult to do because I'm, I, could, I could, yeah, be convoluted. Christianity itself hinges on the deity of Christ. Deity demands perfection. It does. To, to be a deity means you are perfect, right? Which is why you're not one and I'm not one and nobody else is one other than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, which the Bible says the fullness of deity dwelt in him in bodily form. I told that to the, to the Jehovah's Witnesses yesterday. They didn't really have an answer for that. Um, but deity demands perfection. There's no deity that's imperfect. They contradict. They cancel each other out. Sinless perfection demands being a deity or it demands deity. And let me put it in other, wor other words or as, Austin's like, uh, or as Austin likes to say, say it in another way. Christ was sinless because Christ is, go is God. And Christ is God, therefore Christ is sinless. That's how it has to go. Christ is sinless because Christ is God. And Christ is God, therefore Christ is sinless. Deity demands a sinless nature. Now there is an argument out there called the impeccability of Christ that uh, is an argument as to Jesus and why he did not sin. Um, and so, and there's all of these things, and I'm not getting into all that, but I will just say my personal conviction is that Jesus, being fully God, also fully man, did not have a sin nature. You and I sin, why? Because we have a sin nature. That's what sinners do. They sin. It's our nature to do so. If a lion or a tiger is, is under an apple tree, a lion has the mechanics to climb the tree to cup the apple to pick it and put it in a basket to make a bushel. A lion has the mechanics to do it or a tiger has the mechanics to do it but it's not in the nature of the lion it's not in the nature of the tiger to climb the tree to reach it to cup it and to put it in there. That's not the nature of it. You see there might be any animal that has the mechanics to do a thing or another thing but they're going to do what's according to their nature. So sinners do what's according to our nature. It's a sin nature we sin. Jesus, being fully God, I would say had no sin nature because deity demands a sinless nature. Well, some might say, well, but he's fully man. I get that. And they want to say, well, he's fully man, therefore, to identify with us, he had to have a sin nature. He didn't sin, but he had to have a sin nature. A sin nature implies that he wrestles with disobedience to God. That's what a sin nature does. You and I can go sinless today, but that doesn't mean that we won't wrestle against our flesh. Our sin nature causes us to wrestle against our flesh. My personal conviction is that Jesus didn't wrestle as to whether or not he would defy God because he is God. And I can't separate the two in my mind. Now, there's others who would argue that without making Jesus a sinner, and that's an interesting conversation to have. I'm just explaining my view. Deity demands sinless nature. The sin sacrifice for all who would believe required a spotless offering. If there was no perfect sacrifice, there would be no appeasement of God's wrath. If it didn't take a spotless, pure sacrifice, then the thief to the right or the murderer on the left would have been enough to atone for our sins. But it demanded what? It demanded deity. It demanded 
perfection. It demanded a spotless lamb. No perfection, no sacrifice, no sacrifice, no substitution, no substitution. There's no hope. And that's the chain of thought. The deity of Christ is the heart of John's gospel. The Pharisees saw this. The Pharisees were not idiots. When they sought to kill Jesus because he had made himself to be equal to God in John 17, uh, I'm sorry, in John 5, 18. When they did that, they knew. They didn't misunderstand Jesus. They didn't say, you know what, we're going to kill him because he made himself out to be God. And then later you don't find that Jesus is like, look, I didn't mean it that way, guys. You misunderstood me. No, they got it. They got what Jesus was saying. Jesus made himself to be God. He equated himself with God, which to them, to the Jews, was blasphemy. And they sought to kill him. Hebrews 1.8, it speaks of God in all these ways. And then all of a sudden, it shifts to speaking of the Son. It says, now of the Son, I say. And you know what it does? It does something interesting, which is what I like to talk about with the Jehovah's Witness, is the author of Hebrews transitions to speaking of the Son, but the name designation he gives to the Son is the same name designation that is given to Yahweh in the Old Testament, which is a mighty, mighty problem for anyone that rejects the deity of Christ. Why in the world would the biblical authors offer the name to Jesus, Jehovah, that was given to Yahweh in the Old Testament, Jehovah? He's calling them the same thing. The Magi, Mary, Thomas, the elders, the blind man, when Jesus spat in John chapter 9, John, uh, Jesus spat in the dirt, made the mud, and rubbed it on the guy's eyes. The guy worshipped him, along with these others. They all worshipped him. So Jesus is either God or he condones idolatry. He receives the worship of all these people. I get it. When the Magi came, he was a baby. Maybe he didn't think, hey, you guys, stop that. It's, an, it's, it's inappropriate. You know, I don't, that's not what happened. And God and Jesus are both, God the Father and Jesus are both referred to as the first and the last in the book of Isaiah and in the book of Revelation. It's over and over and over that we see the deity of Jesus, the divine sonship of Christ, which is why we say it's a primary theme in this book. So that's Christ's relationship to deity and finally his relationship to creation or his relationship to the cosmos. In the beginning was the word, but also where do we see that kind of phrasing in the Bible? In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And then Colossians and John both substantiate the fact that it was in fact God the Son that created all things because he was there from eternity past. And as the creator of all things, all things belong to him. Let me give you some application. This introduction gives us the information we need to navigate through the waters of John's gospel. Again, it's as though the Holy Spirit has placed the key over the door so that we can walk through the, the hallways of John's gospel and explore all the things that are there for us to understand. Nature tells us of God's being and his existence, but it reveals very little about God's character. Jesus has come so that we might understand the moral attributes of God, the character of God, his love, his mercy, his grace, his justice. It's not just revealed in creation. So here's a point I want you to take away. A healthy Christology, a healthy understanding of Jesus fosters a healthy theology. In order to understand God more fully, Christ has been given so that we can understand God more fully. Because according to Hebrews 1 and other places, Jesus is the revelation of God. 
Jesus is the way that we see and that we know God. Jesus himself said it. Jesus is the filter through which we understand and know God. He's the dividing line that stands between those who are religious and those who are righteous. Jesus is the line of distinction that oftentimes separates Christianity from cults. And I looked at those Jehovah's Witnesses yesterday, and I said, let me say something. After we talked for about an hour, I said, let me say something. I said, I love you men. And one, and one of the men had his little boy there, and I said, let me say something. I said, I know that we disagree, and I know that we could have hours and hours of conversation. I said, but let me make a point very clear. If I'm right about what I'm saying the Bible says, then that means you're out here spinning your wheels promoting a false gospel. And I looked at this man, Brett, and I said, and you're bringing your son out here. I said, and you're exposing him to a false gospel. You're shaping a worldview that is being built on a false gospel that is built on a Christ that can't do anything because he's false, a God that can't fulfill promises because he's false. And I said, you will stand before God, you, your son, and all who follow. I said, and you all be cast out of his presence, out of the presence of his mercy and grace, but into the presence of his wrath. Because Christianity, hope, life, it hinges on the person of Christ. Regarding Christ's relationship to time, he will insert things into our time, but at a time that's right for him. So for those of you that are waiting, for those of you that are watching time go by, and you're in this season of waiting, wanting God to respond, wanting God to answer, wanting God to give you some kind of direction for things, because we're, we're in that often. We say, you know what? God exists outside of time, so he operates a bit differently. It's not that he's squeezing me necessarily, he might be. It's not that he just wants me to, to, to be frustrated, not necessarily. It's that God operates on a different time scale. He will work and move at the right time when it's best for us and when it's most glorifying for him because he exists outside of time and sees all time equally vividly. He has omniscience. He knows all things. He knows how it all will work out. He knew your sins before you ever committed them, and guess what? He still rescued you from darkness. Regarding his relationship to the Godhead, because he is divine, his atonement was acceptable to the Father. If Jesus is not fully God, then we are wasting our time. Because the atonement was no different than the man to his left or the man on his right. And the hundreds of who died on the cross before and after meant nothing. It was Paul who said, if Christ wasn't crucified, if that meant nothing, he says, then we're most of all to be pitied. He said, we are wasting our time. And as far as his relationship to creation or to the cosmos, as the designer, he decides what and why the design is what it is. And as the creator, he maintains sovereign control over his creation because that's what creators get to do. As creator, he has the power to sustain and he keeps us in him because he's sovereign. And this is what John wants you to know. In just three verses, so 45 minutes worth of talking to you, this is just scratches the surface of what John wants you to know as we start to pilgrim, uh, as we start to work our way through the rest of John's gospel. 
So I would encourage you, as we're preparing each week to preach through this, that you be reading and thinking and studying and praying and following along with us. I know that we do that in our missional communities. But saturate yourself with this book so that we can journey together so that we can enjoy these deep, rich, and doctrinal truths together. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, that you have so richly lavished onto us grace and that you give us so many things that we don't deserve. Salvation, you give us families. Lord, you give us friendships. You give us a, a, a building that we can congregate in and that we can make much of you. Lord, you give us music and you give us voices that we can lift to you. You, you privilege us in so many ways. And Lord, I pray that our perspective would, would, would be that of gratitude. And Father, I pray that these deep truths, hard though they may be to sift through, and I pray that they found a place in our mind and they are working right now to renew our mind. That you're using these truths to make us more like Jesus already. Lord, so that when we leave here, we're mindful of the identity that we have in Christ. And that identity becomes a bit richer to us because maybe we haven't thought about it in a long time, but we see Christ maybe anew and afresh today because of what we've seen in the Word. Father, I pray that you would continue to give Austin and myself um, discipline to study, discipline to consider these things, discipline to work through all these rich truths. Lord, would you use the foolish to confound the wise and that you would fill our, fill our mouths with words and our hearts with passion and our minds with thoughts that we can clothe these thoughts and we can use our words to convey the deep truths from your word. Would you do that by your grace? And when you do that for your people, would you do that for your glory? Father, we thank you so much that we've been able to gather yet another week because there may be a time where we can't. Death may take us or something may happen. Lord, we're thankful for this day. And I pray that we would make as much as we can as this day. And in that, that we make much of you. In Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed.